As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Threw him on the ground, and he was telling me he couldn't breathe. The police continued to suffocate or kill unarmed black men. I do believe that if things were handled a little differently, that he would still be here. The informal policy was throughout the Milwaukee Police Department, if you're talking, you're breathing. They're not trained to respond that way, but it is their common sense experience, generally speaking. People can still exude air without taking it back in. I want a policy that says, if someone says, I cannot breathe, you have to let them go. It would be better for us to err on the side of caution. We're just going to get an ambulance from now on. I want this done immediately. Magic words won't do it. These are fact-driven situations. I want individuals to know that they have something that they can say to prevent them from dying. The final desperate pleas of George Floyd are echoing all over the world, but the man who suffocated under the knee of a Minneapolis police officer is far from the first to say, I can't breathe, before dying in police custody. Milwaukee police have their own dark and troubled history of officers who failed to call for medical help as a criminal suspect begged for air. Now, the Milwaukee Common Council wants to make the words, I can't breathe, an automatic trigger for police to summon an ambulance. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson here with my colleague Amanda St. Hilaire. Good morning, Amanda. Hi, Brian. We are recording this episode on Thursday, June 18th. And it was just two days ago that the Milwaukee Common Council voted unanimously to urge the city's Fire and Police Commission to make a significant change in police policy. The proposal, authored by Alderman Russell Stamper, would require police to stop restraining any individual who says, I can't breathe while in police custody. And those three words, Amanda, have become, as you know, a mantra for uh, Black Lives Matter protesters all across the country. And really for anyone who's watched the full eight minutes and 46 seconds of Minneapolis police officer kneeling on George Floyd's neck, it's easy to see why. Floyd repeatedly told that officer he could not breathe, but the officer refused to release his knee from Floyd's neck. The video shows in graphic fashion how George Floyd eventually stops speaking goes limp, and we all now know, eventually dies from suffocation. But George Floyd was not the first high-profile in-custody death to involve a person begging for air. One of the other most notable cases, of course, the death of Eric Garner, who also pleaded for air as New York City police had him in a chokehold. Officers ignored him, and he died. But Milwaukee police have their own history of black men dying when officers ignored their pleas for breath. And Brian, it seems like the one people around here remember the most is Derek Williams. 
That's right. And Williams, uh, as you may recall, died in the back of a Milwaukee police squad car in 2011. Video shows him repeatedly telling officers he could not breathe. They responded that he was just playing games. It was a little less than a year before that that a man named James Perry died in police custody here in Milwaukee after suffering a seizure and hitting his head on the floor of a jail cell. Perry had grown increasingly incoherent throughout the day and evening and began to drool. Officers put a spit mask over his head. He told them he could not breathe, and they said he was faking it. Most notably, uh, one officer actually said, if you're talking, you're breathing. Now, Perry's condition worsened, but by the time the spit mask was removed from his face, he was unresponsive. He also died. And just a month before that, a man named Tony Bean died in the back of a Milwaukee police paddy wagon. He wasn't committing a crime, but he had been behaving strangely. He was knocking on doors in his neighborhood asking for help, telling people someone was after him. A pair of beat cops walking nearby responded and took him to the ground. They held him face down with his hands behind his back. He vomited on the ground. He told him he couldn't breathe. They eventually forced him into the back of a police wagon. Again, he was saying he couldn't breathe, but officers didn't summon an ambulance. It wasn't until after they drove around the corner, he was kicking at the doors again, saying he couldn't breathe, and his condition then worsened. They eventually stopped. They called for help, but it was too late. Now, all three of those deaths occurred in less than a year's time, and they exposed a potential problem in Milwaukee police training that civil rights attorney James Gendy targeted in a 2014 deposition of then Milwaukee police chief. Ed Flynn. Was there a unwritten policy or uh, training in the police department that an inmate who is complaining of difficulty breathing um, is okay if he can talk? Yeah, there was, uh, <clears throat> the training is not that anymore. And when you say, quote, if you can talk, you can breathe, that's a common understanding of all officers dealing with a crisis, close quote. What did you mean by that? I meant that that was and has been a common understanding. I'm not asserting that it's correct. I'm not asserting that it's medical training. I am asserting that it is a common understanding. Turns out not to be correct, but it has been an understanding that has used to be part of training years ago, isn't, but it's an understanding. If somebody is capable of speaking, they are presumably breathing. So to start, Brian, just from a scientific perspective, does being able to talk mean that a person can breathe? As you heard uh, then police chief Flynn say that was a common understanding among officers, and he said that that common understanding came from Heimlich maneuver training, that when a person was choking, if they could have a conversation with you, if they could talk to you, it meant they were able to breathe and you wanted to be careful about doing uh, thrusts that could potentially actually lodge something in their, their breathing passage and cause more of a problem. But the idea that someone can exude sound uh, means they can breathe air back in is not true. And since then, that training has definitely changed, especially when officers are dealing with someone they are restraining in police custody. Just because they can plead for air does not mean they can breathe it back in or that they can breathe it back in at a level that is uh, able to oxygenate them properly. You can still be suffocating because you are struggling to breathe, but you're able to get words out. So obviously the common understanding from 2012 changed since then. And before we get into how, what is the 
process for making those kinds of changes in policy and practice at Milwaukee Police Department. Because we have the police chief, but in Milwaukee, we also have a fire and police commission, and and not everyone is familiar with how that process works. Well, the Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission oversees policy and and discipline at the Milwaukee Police Department. It's an independent body uh, that actually uh, hires and fires police chiefs, and 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 so it has the authority to determine what that ultimate policy is going to be. Now, the police chief obviously has a very big say in that policy as well. And at the time in 2012, uh, Police Chief Flynn decided that because of this string of deaths and the attention that had been placed on them and the legal trouble they were finding themselves in, there were two of these cases that led to federal civil rights wrongful death lawsuits, uh, he decided that it was time to make a change in policy. And and there's a difference between necessarily what's written in policy and also in, in just practice. I mean, leadership can establish how they want officers to respond to things, but obviously standard operating procedures, those are in black and white. Those are the kinds of things that are determined by the Fire and Police Commission. And, and at the time, there was a policy in place, even before these three deaths, that said that if someone was uh, having medical issues, if medical attention was necessary, they were supposed to summon uh, emergency help. But it wasn't very clear on what constituted necessity of medical help. There wasn't a clear delineation of what was a circumstance that called for necessary medical help. It was just an understanding that if there's someone who needs this medical attention, you're supposed to get it, summon it, or deliver it yourself as a first responder. Uh, but it wasn't necessarily clear or delineated what meant or what, what prompted that call for medical help. Fast forward to today, since that 2012, I guess, realization that Chief Flynn had, wh- what do things look like now compared to what they were then? It was actually back in October of 2012 that that, uh, Chief Flynn announced the change in policy and the Fire and Police Commission adopted it, which was to more explicitly state that when a person, it's referred to as a prisoner, someone who's in custody of police, it doesn't mean they're in prison, but a, a prisoner in police custody or someone who's being detained, when they express uh, a need for medical attention, if they are, and, and it, it actually delineated certain things. If they're unconscious, they're not expressing, but if, if they're unconscious, obviously medical attention is needed. If they are bleeding severely or even moderately, that calls for immediate medical attention. If they express a problem breathing or if an officer observes a problem breathing, then they should be calling for medical attention. There are a few other specific things that are laid out, but the, the key to that change in policy was that the call for medical attention should be immediate, that they should immediately uh, engage the emergency medical system. And the, and that was supported by what the chief was saying at the time publicly was, from now on, we're just going to call an ambulance. Essentially, even if you don't believe them, even if you think they're faking, err on the side of calling for medical attention, let the medical experts determine. Officers aren't Aren't, aren't doctors, officers aren't medical professionals. So let the medical professionals determine if there's an issue here. If there's not, then proceed with your arrest, proceed with your detention, but err on the side of caution. And at the time, there was some concern raised that that might mean a significant increase in cost of the number of ambulance calls. If we have to do this every time someone claims they're having a health issue, boy, this is going to cost a lot of money. What we heard at least early on back in 2012 was there wasn't a significant spike in calls that led to a, a, you know, a huge change in, in the 
the cost to the police department for doing this. And I have requested data from the Milwaukee Fire Department now eight years later to see, was there a spike? Has there been a significant increase in the last eight years? And I'm still waiting to hear back on that. So we don't know for sure. But eight years later, that's essentially what the policy still says. If someone is suffering one of these conditions, if an officer observes it, err on the side of caution, call for emergency help, let the medical professionals make the assessment, and then proceed with your detention. So what does Milwaukee, if that's the policy as it stands, what does Milwaukee Common Council want to change about that? Well, Alderman Stamper, obviously, he and and so many others are responding to what happened specifically to George Floyd and to uh, these other cases where this uh, term, I can't breathe, has been spoken, has been recorded, and and has been ignored. And, And to some degree, it may be an emotional response. It may be that we just want to do something to say this can't keep happening. It also suggests that if this has been the policy for the last eight years, why are these things still going on in places all across the country? Now, it's it's important to point out there hasn't been a case like this since 2012 in Milwaukee, specifically a person claiming they can't breathe and then being ignored and dying. So if you're Milwaukee police, you would look at this and say the new policy or the policy changes are working. And in fact, civil rights attorney James Gendy, who we spoke to and who you heard from uh, a few moments ago, he says he believes under the current administration, things have gotten better and they are uh, instituting this not only as written policy, but as sort of a top-down edict that this is the way things need to be done. But the Common Council wanted to be, or particularly Alderman Stamper, wanted to be more specific. Those words, I can't breathe, those are the words of the day. It's what everyone's talking about. He wants that to actually be specifically written into policy Um, because, as he said it, he wants a person who says, I can't breathe. If a person says that, he wants police to let him go. And he said that a couple of times in an interview with Fox 6's Angelica Sanchez. He said, if a person says, I can't breathe, you got to let him go. And when you just leave it at that, that raises its own questions. And I wanted to ask Alderman Stamper, what do you mean by you have to let them go. He has not responded to me. He has not agreed to do an interview with me specifically. So I wasn't able to follow up to get that clarification. In fairness, though, he did later in that interview say, you have to release the hold. You have to let them breathe. And and this came up at the council meeting um, as there was debate over this and other issues related to the police department. Uh, Alderman Shantia Lewis or Alderwoman Shantia Lewis said, that she wanted to clarify, this doesn't mean let them out of custody. This means just release them from whatever position they're in that's restricting their breathing or release whatever it is that, that's uh, causing them trouble breathing or get them the attention so they can get uh, their breathing back up to speed. But there is that question of what he really wants out of that policy, and the resolution isn't specific. It just says, in fact, if you read the resolution word for word, it says that it calls on the Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission to adopt a policy to deal with people uh, in custody who say, I can't breathe. Um, What exactly that policy would look like, that remains to be seen, and we'll see if that happens going forward. And Brian, you and I the other day interviewed a use of force expert about a few different things, but I recall one of the things he said was after looking through Milwaukee Police Department policies, he said it looks like this change would be redundant. 
Yeah, so Emmanuel Kappelstone, that's the, the person that you uh, secured for an interview and allowed me to ask a couple of questions. And he is uh, a, a nationally renowned expert on police training and police use of force. He's testified in, in a number of cases, and he's familiar with Milwaukee police use of force policy and other policies because he's actually been involved in some of the uh, investigations of in-custody deaths here in Milwaukee. And so I wanted to ask him about this proposal. He'd read the resolution before we even talked. He knew what Milwaukee police existing policy was. So he wasn't speaking generically. He was speaking from the specific uh, standard operating procedures that are in place here. And he said, this isn't necessary. He, I think the, the phrase he used was, I'm sure the Milwaukee Common Council means well, but he doesn't think any additional policies are called for because What's already in policy says if a person requests medical attention, police are supposed to summit it. And failing to do so is a violation of not only their standard operating procedures, but depending upon the circumstances could in fact in itself be a crime if they refuse to get medical attention for someone who needs it and who obviously is in need of it um, in front of them. So he's saying that this is unnecessary. Um, Alderman Stamper says he simply disagrees. He believes that this is an important specific clarification. Um, but again, I think we'll, what would be what, what we will see going forward is if the Fire and Police Commission takes this up. And it's important to point out the resolution urges the Fire and Police Commission to do so. It, the Common Council doesn't have any authority to require that. At least I don't believe it does. And I did ask the Fire and Police Commission. I left a message asking for a response. I wanted to find out what happens now. I haven't heard back from them. But if the Fire and Police Commission takes this up, what would this look like? What would the debate look like? How might they change the policy to address breathing issues specifically? And would that advance what's in, in uh, the policy any further? It may well be this is just an effort to draw further attention to this specific issue um, and, uh, you know, to deal with something at a time when uh, obviously there's so much attention on this nationwide. Well, and someone listening to this might say, OK, let's say this policy change is redundant. How does that hurt? But there is a very real concern, and, and I'm exploring that in a few upcoming stories, that the changes that are being made right now are changes to make everyone feel better, but aren't really going to enact some of the actual change that people want to see in policing, specifically in Milwaukee policing. Well, I, and I don't know exactly what all you've explored on your end uh, because you've been close to the issue, but I would think that when you start getting into specific phrases, magic words, in a policy that would require an officer to release you from a particular hold or something like that. When you get very specific, what you sometimes have on the other end is what's left out. If they, well, right. the, the, the policy says if you say these words, we have to, but what if you said those words? What if the person in custody doesn't say, I can't breathe? They say something else that's similar, but it's not the met, I need air, um, I can't get air, or you're choking me. What if it's those words? So uh, it, how you write a policy could in fact have unintended consequences. And I think that's what would be discussed and debated if the Fire and Police Commission does take this up. But it's very clear this was a unanimous decision by the Common Council. No one objected to this particular thing. And it may well be because it wasn't a specific policy proposal. It was an urging of the Fire and Police Commission to adopt a policy. If the idea is let's just make sure people who are struggling to breathe are covered, 
then that review may well determine that what we have in place is enough or we can actually add something to make it even more explicit. But the, the concern does come in and, and, and the, the expert we talked to, Mr. Kappelson, raised that, that it, when, when you start to uh, look at magic words that deal with very specific fact-driven situations, every case is different, you could in fact have uh, consequences that were not intended that do more harm than good. Well, and as we talk about police policy, there, there's a focus on police policies right now, but I think anyone who either has worked in law enforcement or even civil rights activists will tell you that it's not just the policies, it's how people are trained on the policies and then what actually goes into practice. So we don't want to neglect those areas in favor of just focusing on a policy because you can have the best policy in the world if your own officers don't understand the policy and don't follow the policy. It, it doesn't really mean anything. Well, and I think that really uh, speaks volumes when you look back at that testimony, the deposition in 2014 of then police chief Ed Flynn. Now, he's asked by attorney Gendy, uh, this, if you're talking, you're breathing. Was that the policy? Was that the, in? He, it wasn't in training. It wasn't in black and white, but he says, was that the informal policy of the Milwaukee Police Department at the time? And what he meant by that was, yeah, maybe it doesn't say it in black and white, but is that essentially how officers are trained, how they're taught? Is that how they're led by example? Is that the informal policy? If you're talking, you're breathing. And the chief's response was, well, it, it, it's not the formal policy, um, but it is their common sense understanding. And he asks, well, so... What does that mean? Well, what does that... Yeah, what does that mean? But also, he says, you know, was it ever the training? He says, well, I think it, it was at one time. Well, when? And the chief said he doesn't know. I don't know when we... And he used the term... I don't know when we evolved. And I thought the term evolved was interesting because evolution refers to something that has improved over time. And uh, and so he's suggesting, yeah, we did do it. We don't do it anymore. But he doesn't know when. Sort of that lack of specificity means that the guy at the top couldn't even tell you when we stopped teaching people this was the way. It suggests that there was certainly, if there, if there wasn't an overt bit of training or, or if there wasn't an overt policy that said if, if a person can talk, they can breathe, then at least there was no overt attempt to dissuade officers from believing that or to teach them that that's not true. And so when the message from the top isn't clear or when the message from the top is, even though it doesn't say this, that's the way we behave, that's common sense, that's how the people in the rank and file are going to behave, that's what they're going to follow. So that's really uh, what what uh, Attorney Gendy said when he talked about the current administration doing better. He believes that under Chief Alfonso Morales, the message is being sent, that you need to call for that medical attention, that you shouldn't ignore these pleas. And so regardless of what's in black and white, the message from the top, he says, is what's important. What does Chief Morales have to say about all this? And I wanted to interview the chief about this. Uh, he did not uh, agree to do an interview. I, I uh, communicated with his spokesperson, Sergeant Sharonda Grant, who simply said he was not available for this. Now, after our story aired, she did reach out to me and she she apologized and said they've been inundated with media requests. And I can imagine that they have not just here in Milwaukee, but from all over Wisconsin, maybe all over the country. And, and as you know, it, it wasn't, you know, just these past incidents that have drawn attention, but during the protests here in Milwaukee, some controversial incidents of, uh, involving the way police interacted with protesters, including one in which there was video of an officer 
who of all things had placed his knee on the neck of a protester while restraining that protester. So that has raised some questions about, well, wait a minute, what's going on in your house today? Um, so Chief Morales was not available to do an interview, but they did want one clarification in my story, and, and that is that Alderman Stamper said he had spoken to someone on the chief's command staff, an assistant chief, who gave him the impression that they think this would be redundant as well. Um, and in in my story, it was a little less clear that he had talked to an assistant chief, and the impression may have come off that he talked directly to Chief Morales. They wanted the public to know Chief Morales has not said that he disagrees with this policy change or this exploration. He is not. He was not the one who said he thinks it would be redundant. Um, but he didn't address whether or not, and I didn't have a chance to ask, whether or not he agrees with the fact or how he feels that his police or his assistant chief is telling the alderman he thinks it's redundant. These are questions I'd like to be able to address with Chief Morales. I'd like to talk to him about police policy, about his sense of where they should be going with this, whether improvements are needed. But so far, he's not been available. And uh, I think at, at a certain point, whether it's it's Fox 6 News or anyone else, I think there are a lot of questions that the Milwaukee police chief needs to answer with regard to uh, police policy for dealing with people in custody, for how they interact with protesters, for the things you've been looking into, Amanda, in terms of crowd disbursement policies, use of force. There are a lot of questions and, uh, and it's certainly a lot of people who want to talk to the chief to get his point of view. Well, and typically we'd be able to try and pull the chief aside um, at a public meeting and, uh, you know, whether or not he chooses to answer questions, that's his choice. But when there's a camera there and a microphone, there's a little more accountability. It's a little tougher to duck questions. And in most of those cases, um, public leaders are a little more reluctant to give the appearance that they're ducking questions. But with so many of these meetings happening virtually, the typical avenues and the typical access that we would have to the chief to ask these questions, those have changed greatly. Well, and that's a perfect example is I wanted to speak to Alderman Stamper about his proposal and ask him this question about redundancy and ask him, what is it you really want to see in the policy that isn't already there? Um, and what do you mean by you have to let them go? Do you mean it's be, these are basically get out of jail free words, or does it just mean they have to release their restraint? I couldn't ask him those questions because when the Common Council met on Tuesday, they met virtually. Because of COVID. Because of COVID. Now, three members were in a committee room uh, on the third floor of City Hall, and we were allowed in to record that because nobody else was there from the media. So they said there's enough room, enough space, come on in. One of the council members, literally just one, former council president Ashante Hamilton, was sitting in the dark in the actual council chambers at his desk. And the rest were on, you know, were through through video, were, were on Zoom or whatever app was being used uh, to communicate. So Alderman Stamper is one who was, uh, you know, uh, chiming in remotely. And that means that when that meeting's over, I don't have the ability to walk up and ask him some of these questions that he's refused to answer directly with me. One of the things that we're going to be following going forward is so long as COVID is still an issue and so long as public bodies continue to meet virtually, what does that do to the public's access, the ability to access elected officials who may well otherwise just not return their calls or decline to do interviews? Yep, that's going to be something as, as we watch things unfold. It, it's an interesting balance of 
um, you know, public health concerns, very real public health concerns, but also, you know, you you want to believe the best in everyone, but you also want to watch and make sure that people in power aren't exploiting things to avoid accountability. And that's something we'll be keeping an eye on as we follow these pushes for changes in policies. And of course, we're going to continue talking about all of these things right here on Open Record as we cover the protests as we cover the issues with policing as we cover the COVID-19 pandemic and other issues that arise. If there's a topic you want us to discuss on Open Record or an issue you think we should investigate, please send us an email to theinvestigators at fox.com. And note, the email has changed. It is theinvestigators at fox.com. Thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Bachuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record. If you haven't done that already, you can find it wherever you do your podcast listening. Thanks for listening to Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire. And for Brian Polson, we will be back with our next regularly scheduled episode on Tuesday. Mm-hmm.